I want to ask you to please bring a Bible and a notebook for tomorrow morning's meeting. Tomorrow morning I will attempt to put legs on what you have heard last night and what you will hear tonight. I will attempt to put wheels on it, to make it land, to make it practical. And uh, we will meet tomorrow at 11 a.m. So you get an extra hour to sleep in or whatever you wish to do. And we will meet from 11 to 1. And it will be the most practical of all the meetings. Um, who was not here last night? Would you raise your hand, please? Okay. Oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I'm not going to take our time to introduce all of you. There's quite a few of you. But I'll just give a, a brief summary. Last night, we opened this conference by talking about the fact that God has a strong desire, which is for Himself. And I use the term need, that the Lord has a need. And we looked at the three different kinds of people that house churches typically attract. We looked at the issues involved when those three people become part of a house church. We looked at some of the different types of house churches. We looked at what an organic church is. And then I sought to present a vision, a governing vision. And I said to you that if a group of Christians is going to meet together successfully outside the organized church, they must have a very basic vision. They must have a common goal. And uh, I reduced it down to what I believe is the least common denominator, and that is this, that we exist not to meet our needs. We exist to meet the Lord's need. We exist by Him, through Him, to Him and for Him. There's something in the beating heart of God that is for Himself. And we meet for that need. We meet for that desire. And I told you the story of a little village called Bethany. That Jesus Christ, when He came into this earth, was rejected in all quarters. Everywhere He went, He was rejected. He was not received except for this little town two miles away from Jerusalem called Bethany. And there he, he was not only received, but He was given His rightful place. I'd like to give a message one day called Putting Jesus Christ in His Place. <laughs> and what place is that? It's absolute head of His church. Head of His people. That's the only place He will take. Yes, the Lord will visit. He will visit. He's such a gracious God. If there are people seeking Him, He'll visit. But He wants more than that. He doesn't just want a one-night lodging place. He wants a place to dwell. And He will only dwell where He is given His rightful place. A place of absolute centrality, supremacy, and headship. You know, there are a lot of questions that people ask me about house church. Okay, what do you do, with, what do, you, what do, you do about this doctrine? What do, you, what do you do if you have a doctrinal difference with this person about this issue? What do you do about winning souls? What do you do about discipleship? What do you do about... You know, it's just endless. And my common answer to that question is this. We will get to those things after we have exhausted exploring the riches of Jesus Christ, 
then we'll get to that other stuff. And there's a point there, and that is this. If you make Him your pursuit as a people, all this stuff takes care of itself. And you will find that all your little doctrine and all my little doctrinal disputes, and I don't agree with you on this, and I don't agree with you on that, that stuff just washes away. Because we are blinded by the sight of peerless worth. We are blinded by Him, getting to know Him, finding Him, touching Him, encountering Him, experiencing Him, and sharing Him with one another. And boy, if you have never tapped into a group of Christians that's consumed with nothing else but Christ, you haven't lived. And the whole reason why we're having this conference is to give you that kind of vision. I am not interested in house church. I'm not interested in a form of church. I'm not interested in doctrines. I'm interested in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? He is the embodiment of all spiritual things. Anyway, we will always chase the wrong thing if we're chasing gifts, virtues, doctrines, truths. He is the truth. He is the gift of God. He is the way. He is the life. He is peace. He is hope. He is patience. He's everything you and I need. So the Christian life becomes really simple. It becomes so simple. I am here with my brothers and sisters in this city taking a stand for nothing else but to know, love, experience, encounter, follow, serve, pour myself out, waste myself on the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I get a little bitty amen on that? Saints, I'm trying to give you a vision of a person. And the church flows out of that vision. You know, Paul of Tarsus, he had one vision. He wasn't going around teaching doctrines and trying to convince people of certain theological views. He saw him. Right. And that wiped everything else off the table. And his message was Christ. Christ is Lord. Christ is Savior. Christ is everything. And so what is an organic church? It's a group of people that are pursuing Christ and learning how to live by His life. And if we learn how to live by His life together, guess what? Evangelism takes care of itself. Discipleship takes care of itself. Spiritual growth takes care of itself. Helping the poor and the needy takes care of itself. And it's not us doing it out of human energy. It's Him doing it through us. And it's not an individual thing. It's a corporate thing. There is no other foundation upon which a church can be built except Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. So I am attempting to do the impossible in one weekend with my brother Gary here to try to present to you a glimpse of this glorious Lord and give you a little bit of practical help as to how to know Him better and how to pursue Him with one another. And so that's what tonight and tomorrow is going to be about. Okay? So, that is my introduction. I want to talk first about the four habitats that a Christian can live in. A habitat is an environment wherein a particular species lives and survives. Every species has a habitat. And if you put that species in the wrong habitat, it will not survive, 
or its natural functions will cease to operate. For example, if you take a salt water catfish and you put it in fresh water, what will happen to it? It dies, right? Yeah, it will die. <laughs> if you take an Arctic penguin and you put that Arctic penguin in a tropical environment, it will die. It's the wrong habitat. If you take a polar bear and you bring it down to sunny Florida, you give it the proper food supply, it may live, but its reproductive organs will cease to function. So anytime you take a species and you stick it in the wrong habitat, it's either going to die or its natural functions will cease to operate. Okay? Now, we are Christians. I don't know if you realize this, but when you received Christ and divine life entered into you, you became part of a new creation. You became part of a new humanity. The early Christians, and we have documentation of this in the writings of the early Christians, they called themselves the third race. They were neither Jew nor Gentile. Something different. Paul uses the term new creation again and again. New humanity. One new man. They also called themselves the new race. There is a, a gentleman, a, a writer from the past named Arthur Custance, and he called the Christians the new species. I don't know if you realize that, but you are part of a new kind of humanity because you have divine life in you. And Jesus Christ was the firstborn of that new creation. Now, because we're part of a new species, guess what? We have a habitat that God designed for us to live in. And if you take the Christian out of its native habitat and you stick it in an artificial habitat, guess what's going to happen? Spiritually, the Christian will die or its spiritual instincts will cease to function. There's a thing called habitat destruction. It's when human beings destroy the natural habitat of a species. And I would dare say that around the 3rd and 4th century, beginning in the 3rd and 4th century, our native habitat as Christians began to be destroyed. And an artificial habitat took its place. Now, are you following any of this? Uh, this is the reason why so many Christians leave the institutional church and say they're dying spiritually. This is why Reggie McNeil, who is an expert at church growth and church development, made the comment that Christians are leaving the institutional church for a new reason. They're not leaving, they're not leaving because they lost their faith. They're leaving to preserve their faith. What's really happening? The instincts of our species as Christians are crying out for our habitat, our natural habitat. You know what it is? It's called ecclesia. It's a community of our own kind where we come together under one head and His name is Jesus and He is invisible, but He's alive. He's still alive, folks. And He lives in us. And that habitat is a real thing. It's a people who come together under His headship. 
It's a people who come together to enthrone Him and live a shared life in Christ. And our meetings together, our corporate meetings, what has been replaced by worship services, but our corporate meetings are the outflow of that shared life in Christ that the community is to have. And uh, you see this this new species and this new habitat all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the first century, a face-to-face community. Now, in Romans 15, we won't look there, you can read it at some point, Paul tells us that the Old Testament is God's picture book. The Old Testament is full of types and shadows, analogies, allegories, that represent Christ in the church. I mean, you all know that the old temple of Israel was not really the real temple. That was a picture of the real temple. And the real temple was Jesus Christ and His church, the body of Christ. That's the real temple. The lamb that was slain every year for Passover, that was just a picture. That's why we don't slay lambs today. The real lamb has been slain. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. You follow me? Everything was a picture. Okay? It really happened, but it was a picture. Well, in the Old Testament, we have a picture of four habitats for the Christian. Four habitats wherein you and I as Christians can live. Three of them, well, I'll just say this. Two of them are counterfeit habitats. One of them is a transition habitat. You've got to go there for a short time. But you can spend a long time there, longer than necessary, if you want. And then the fourth one is our true habitat. It's a picture of the real habitat. So I want to take you through these four habitats very quickly, okay? The first one is Egypt. And you can read all about Egypt in Exodus chapters 1 to 14. Egypt, brothers and sisters, is a counterfeit habitat. God's people were there for 400 years but that was not their destination Egypt is a picture of this world system it represents the materialism of this world the consumerism of this world the pleasures that this world offers the Christian with the intention to unravel and rapture, engulf their life and capture their heart. The greed of this world. When a Christian is living in Egypt, he is building bricks to build a house for the wrong master. He's building bricks for Pharaoh and he's building Pharaoh's house. And he may not realize it, but he is in bondage. Egypt is the city of bondage. It's the treasured city. Oh, so many wonderful things in Egypt that appeal to the eyes and capture the heart. But it's bondage. And when you and I choose to live in Egypt as a Christian, we're living in the wrong habitat and we're building the house for the wrong person. You and I as Christians will never meet the Lord's need if we're living in Egypt. God, from the beginning, has wanted a house. A house where He can live. Or to use the words of Jesus, a place to lay His head. He will not build His house in Egypt. 
So brothers and sisters, let me just put it this way. The Christian who makes the pursuit of earthly success and earthly pleasure greater than the pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ is living in Egypt. Now, I say that not so that we can figure out, okay, well, who's living in Egypt that I know? Let me rebuke them. No, it's for us to look and say, well, am I living in Egypt? Just remember, you will build a house, and you can build a house for the wrong person. God wants his house built with living stones, and that's us. Okay, so that's Egypt. That's number one. Gosh, we can spend another two hours talking about that, but this is just a summary. The second counterfeit habitat is Babylon. Now, Babylon finds its roots in the Tower of Babel. Do you remember the story? The men of the earth came together and said, Let us build a tower that reaches the heavens. And they built it with brick. That's significant. And then they said, we will build this and out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, their motive came out so that we can make a name for ourselves. Now, man builds with brick. That's a man-made device. God builds with stones. It's very important. So they used their man-made ingenuity, their man-made efforts, their man-made genius and intelligence and built a tower to reach the heavens. It was their effort at trying to reach the Almighty God and the motivation so that we can make a name for ourselves. Brothers and sisters, what is that? That's organized religion. Plain and simple. Building with brick to reach the heaven, to make a name for ourselves. It's organized religion. And if you follow the transition of Babylon, Abraham was from Babylon, it was called Chaldea, or the Chaldeas, and God's word was, come out, leave. And as the years progressed, during the days of Daniel, Jeremiah prophesied of it, God's people Israel, who were in Jerusalem, who built the true temple of God made of stone, not brick, and who were living in the true habitat that God called out for Himself, Jerusalem, they were taken captive to Babylon for 70 long years. And you know what happened? The Babylonians destroyed the temple. They leveled it. And they took the gold and the silver that was in the temple, in the house of God, they brought it to Babylon and they put it into the house of idols. And the word Babylon means mixture. And that's what organized religion is. It's the mixing of man-made effort, man-made motive, man-made genius, man-made attempt, endeavors, mixed with the holy vessels of God putting the gold and the silver into the house of idols. And it's interesting what happened, because the story is tragic, but it's so enlightening. All of God's people were in Babylon for 70 years. That's a long time. And they had freedom. They built their own houses. They started their own businesses. 
And you know what? They had the freedom to worship God. But they could not worship where God chose. And they could not worship where God specified. Because the temple, which was the place of worship that God himself created and designed and called, was destroyed. So you know what they were allowed to do? They were allowed to build synagogues. And they worshiped God in synagogues. In Babylon. And God still loved his people. And he still blessed them. But my dear brothers and sisters, God refused to have his house in the land of Babylon. He refused to build his house there. So this was Israel's attempt to have worship on their own terms and out of their own efforts and out of their own mind. And that's what the synagogue is. God never, ever called His people to build synagogues. And there was a call to go back to the land, Jerusalem. I'm letting my people come back. Go back to your native habitat, the place where I called you to live, where I called you to build my house, and go back and rebuild my house with stone. And you know what happened? Only 2% of Israel went back to the land. Out of 2 million people, 50,000 went back, and they're called the remnant. Why did such a small, small, seemingly insignificant number of God's people return to the land to build God's house? Because everyone else had sunken their roots deeply into the land of Babylon. They built homes there. They raised families there. They had businesses there. And they worshipped God in the synagogue. And it was too costly for them to go back to Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? Well, saints, that's a picture. That's a picture. That's a monumental picture. Whenever Whenever you hear somebody say, How is it that God's perfect will can't be thus and such? Because look at the masses. Look at what most of His people are doing. They're doing thus and such. So that means that God must be in thus and such. Well, brothers and sisters, just remember Babylon and the remnant. Actually, if you look carefully enough at your Bible from beginning to end, God's always in the small thing. That's the thing that represents His perfect will most of the time. You know why? Because there's a price to pay. It's costly. Did God stop loving His people who stayed in Babylon and turned a deaf ear to His call to come out? No. Absolutely not. Were they any less His people? No. But He had a purpose for Himself. He wanted a house for Himself, a testimony on the earth, and it was to go to Jerusalem. And the remnant went. And when they went, they were opposed. They started to build and they got so discouraged. And the old men who were there who saw the glorious temple of Solomon looked at this little thing that they were building and they wept because it was not as glorious as what they had before. And the people were discouraged. And that's when Zechariah and Haggai were raised up. They were raised up afterwards when the people got discouraged, the remnant. They stopped building and Zechariah said, Despise not the day of small things. God is in this. This is for Him. 
And Haggai said, you know what? You're concerned about your own house. You're concerned about reconstructing and adding on to your own homes when God's house is left in ruins. Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and build His house. It's in the book of Haggai. I'm I'm summarizing those two books for you. Um, You can read it. It's all there. So it's rather interesting, isn't it, that Babylon, brothers and sisters, is not the place where the Lord chooses to have His house. He will not live in Babylon. He will bless His people while they're there as much as He can. But His supreme blessing, His perfect will, is Jerusalem. A house built with stone, not brick. Now the third habitat, and it's not really a counterfeit, it's a transitional place, is the wilderness. And I would simply say to you that the wilderness is necessary. The only way to get from Egypt to Jerusalem is you have to go through the desert. You can't fly there. You've got to go through the desert. And the only way to get from Babylon to Jerusalem is through the desert. So the wilderness is necessary. But it's a temporary, transitional place. You're not supposed to live there. (laughs) If you want to pitch your tent in the wilderness, you can. And you can die in the wilderness if you want to. You can watch your bones bleach in the desert if you choose to. But you don't have to. You know that Israel, when they left Egypt, this is in the book of Deuteronomy, it was only supposed to take them 11 days to get from Egypt to (laughs) Canaan. It took them 40 years because they made some pretty big mistakes. And you can prolong your time there. Now, what is the wilderness? Well, I'll tell you this. Everybody's got to go there. The most glaring example for me is the letters I get where people say, you know, I left the world. I want Jesus Christ. I left the religious system. I'm done with it. But I can't find a soul in my town who's interested in meeting under Jesus Christ alone. I can't find a soul. And I am out here dying spiritually. What do I do? That person's in the wilderness. Now here's the thing about the wilderness. God will meet you in the wilderness. You know, He fed His people in the wilderness for 40 years. He gave them manna. So God will meet you in the wilderness. He'll meet your needs there. But I'm going to tell you something. The Christ that is given to you in the wilderness is inadequate for you to live off of. They eventually got tired of the manna. Didn't they? Manna again! (laughs) Uh, Canaan was the land flowing with milk and honey. All the riches of the land were in Canaan. The full yield of the land. That's a picture of the inexhaustible riches of Jesus Christ. It's in the land. It's in Jerusalem. It's in the real habitat. In the wilderness you'll get manna and water. A rock will follow you around and you can drink at any time. But it gets kind of old after a while. All I can say to you is if you want out of the wilderness, you can get out eventually. God will strip you there. He will do that. Remember Paul of Tarsus, before he began his ministry, he spent three years in the Arabian desert. And God stripped him. God reduced him. 
He stripped down to Christ alone and he was an open vessel. God will work on your heart in the wilderness. Don't despise it, but just don't settle on living there. And I'll just say this to you. In my experience, the Lord will respond to a prayer that says, Lord, I've had enough. I believe my time in the wilderness is done. Yes, some of us, listen, have been burned out in Babylon and we need to rest in the wilderness and heal before we can go to Jerusalem. I'm going to repeat that again. Some of us have been burned out in Babylon and we need to rest in the wilderness. We're not ready for Jerusalem because we're not ready to build the house and all we'll do is we'll stop the people who are ready to build the house. You understand what I'm saying? We'll pull them down. Brothers and sisters, don't do that. If you're not ready to go to Jerusalem, then just let the Lord heal you in the wilderness. Do not pull those who are ready to build the house of God in Jerusalem. Don't pull them down. But there will come a time where you will be ready to go to Jerusalem if you don't make the choice to go back to Babylon or Egypt. And at that point, I believe the Lord will answer your prayer. Either He will bring people to you or He may call you to relocate. I've seen it happen. I've relocated two times to use the metaphor, go to Jerusalem and build the Lord's house. To find other living stones who are being built together because there was nothing happening in my town and I felt the Lord called me to do that. Now the Lord doesn't call all of us to do that. But if He calls you to do that, then I say do it. But also realize this, there's no guarantees it's going to last. And there's no guarantees it's going to survive. The Lord may want to do a work in you for a number of years there. Who knows? It may blow up after five years. But during those five years, God may have gained a great deal in your life that you would have never, ever experienced before. So, all I'm saying to you is listen to the Lord. When the pillar of fire leaves the tent, you follow me? The cloud rises up and it moves. You do well to follow the cloud and follow the pillar of fire. Wherever that leads you. And it may, it may be costly. The Lord may be saying, I'm, Jerusalem, I'm going to bring Jerusalem to you. He may say, you are going to bring Jerusalem here. Or He may say, like Abraham, pack your bags, quit your job, and go here. But I say, please do not bring other people down who are building the Lord's house if you're not ready and you need to heal in the wilderness. Are you all with me? So you got four habitats. Egypt, the world system. Babylon, organized religion. The wilderness, which is supposed to be temporary. <laughs> and then Jerusalem. Each one of us, to use the metaphor that we find in the story of Jacob. You remember he had a dream and he saw a ladder going from heaven to earth and there were angels descending and ascending on the ladder. And right before that, he, he got a stone. He made a pillow out of it. He slept on the stone. He had that dream. And there was commerce between heaven and earth. Between God and man. There was movement between the eternal realm and the earthly realm on this ladder. And he woke up and he said, God is here. This is the house of God. And he called it Bethel which means house of God. He took that stone and he poured oil on it. 
He said, this is the house of God. That was the first building block to make up the house of God where God himself will dwell and the Lord Jesus would be able to lay his head. It was a stone and there was oil poured on it. You and I were stones that were taken out of this world. Dead stones, but made by God. Man doesn't make stones, God does. And the Lord took you and I as a stone, a dead stone, and He poured oil on it, and it became, to use the words of Peter, a living stone. But God does not want, He is not satisfied with a bunch of living stones that fill the earth. He wants those stones in every city to be built together to form the house of the Lord. And this is why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, you, church, the church in Ephesus, the church in Asia Minor, the churches in Asia Minor, are to be built together to be a habitation of God through the Spirit, to be a dwelling of God. And Peter says in 1 Peter 2, that you are living stones built together to form the Lord's house. It's a beautiful picture. So what is my job as a living stone? It's to find other living stones to be built together to form the Lord's house. God is not interested in individual living stones. He wants a house. He wants a place to dwell so that He can express Himself. So that He can find rest. And He will use that house. That will be His testimony in the earth in every city. It's a beautiful picture. And where are those living stones destined to be? In a building site in the land of Jerusalem. (laughs) The building site, the habitat. And this is what God has called us to be part of. And there's a price to pay, brothers and sisters. There's a very interesting passage in the Old Testament that shows that the temple of God was built with stones, but there was no mortar to hold them together. You know what had to happen? Each stone was cut and chiseled and shaped to fit perfectly with the other stones. The whole house of God was built together and held together by friction. Now, do you have any idea what that means? (laughs) That means that God's going to take you, O living stone with oil poured upon you, which is the Spirit, and He's going to cut and chisel and shape and hone and you know what he's going you know how he's going to do that he's going to use other living stones to do that but in the end he's going to have a house where his living stones are built together and when people see the house of god they will say god lives here i see him god lives here that's what an ecclesia in a city is. It's where God lives. Where does God live? Oh, He lives down there. He lives in that home there. Go visit them. God lives among those people. That's what the church is. And what do we have today? We have scores of living stones, all independent, individualistic, filing into buildings every week, facing the same way, and then going back and living their own individualistic stone life. And there's no building together. And that's why we're having this conference, to present to you a vision 
that burns in the heart of God. He wants a house. He wants a place to lay his head. He doesn't want to just visit. He wants to dwell. It's a beautiful vision, isn't it? All right, now, I want to shift gears here and do something very, very different. I want to talk to you about the three Gospels. If you read your New Testament carefully, you will find within it three different Gospels. There is the Gospel of what I will call libertinism. Not liberty, but libertinism. And then there is the Gospel of legalism. And then the third Gospel is the Gospel of liberty that's rooted in lordship. So I'll go through that again. The gospel of libertinism, the gospel of legalism, and really the gospel of Christ, or the gospel of Paul. Paul called it my gospel. The gospel of liberty, rooted in lordship. Now, the gospel of libertinism says this. The object of the game is going to heaven. All you need to do is say the prayer, get your get out of hell free card (laughs) your fire insurance papers and now basically it doesn't really matter what you do on this earth God loves you he's not really concerned about your sin he knows you're a sinner we all are and uh, you know we're under grace so it doesn't really matter one way or the other we're going to heaven I mean what's what's the big deal and people who buy into this gospel many of them will pull the grace card to justify all kinds of gross sin they got the grace card I'm in the grace see the gospel of legalism is (laughs) this is the gospel that's fallen off the other side of the saddle this is the gospel that says yes you're saved but if you don't live a certain way God's not going to be happy with you and so there are different degrees of libertinism and there are different degrees of legalism legalism the gospel of legalism will suffocate and smother any Christian under a pile of law and rules and regulations many of which are man made somebody may walk out of the room right now and it's okay. You, you will get your money back for this conference if you walk out of the room. No problem there. But somebody said, you know, when he was a young man, his church told him that it was sinful to go into a bowling alley. And he had to sign a paper saying he would not go into a bowling alley. That was a sin. I mean, that to me is extreme legalism raised to the tenth power. Now, if God told you not to go into a bowling alley, that's fine, but don't put that on another Christian. And herein is the problem with the legalist. The legalist puts his standard of morality on everybody else. The gospel of legalism says, follow the rules. The gospel of libertinism says, it doesn't matter. The legalist is wound tighter than a drum. The libertine is gone hog wild. The legalist is often depicted in Scripture by the Jew. The libertine is often depicted as the wild heathen Gentile. And the church is made up of what? 
Jew and Gentile. Isn't that interesting? I will say this about the libertine. The libertine's in bondage. He doesn't know it, but he's in bondage to his flesh. And the legalist, is he's in bondage. He's in bondage to the law. And you will find that Paul of Tarsus fought these two Gospels in virtually all of his letters. If you want to see him waging warfare against the Gospel of legalism, read Galatians. If you want to see him waging warfare against the Gospel of libertinism, read Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. James also deals with libertinism. Galatians deals with legalism. These are the two enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are the two enemies of the church. Both of them will destroy any church if they're able to take root. Because libertinism encourages and accepts the defiling sins of the flesh. And legalism encourages and accepts the self-righteousness of the flesh. And both are flesh. And both will destroy the work of God. They are false gospels, brothers and sisters. And the scriptures talk about both. You know, Jude talks about libertinism. He talks about those who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. They pervert the grace of God. And Galatians, my goodness, that whole thing is an anthem against legalism of all forms. So what then is the gospel? The gospel, whew, I'm going to give you a new look at the gospel, I think. The word gospel in Paul's day was very familiar to anybody living in the Roman Empire. It was a very familiar word. You know it means good news, Right? In the pagan streets of the Greco-Roman world, everybody knew what gospel was. It was used whenever a new emperor of Rome took the seat of being emperor. When a new emperor ascended, here's what happened. The imperial heralds would go across the streets and say, We have good news. Tiberius has taken the throne. Bow your knee and pay your taxes. That was the gospel in his day. And they believed that the emperors were divine. In fact, they had on their coins that the emperor was the son of God because they believed that Augustus was divine. He was God and all who came from him, his sons, were the sons of God. It was on their coinage. And Rome believed that their nation was destined to bring peace, justice, salvation, and freedom to the whole world. And at the center of the Roman Empire was the emperor who was seen and he was called, listen, the king and the savior of the world. Now, I'm not making this up. So when a new emperor was seated on the throne, they went out to the streets and they heralded Tiberius, Nero, Pay your taxes. Get on your knees. And here Paul of Tarsus comes along who has seen the risen, crucified Christ. And he goes all throughout the Roman Empire and he has a message. And he calls it the Gospel. And he says, I've got good news. There's a new emperor. <laughs> There's a new king. 
His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And He is this world's true Lord. That's a good place to say amen. <laughs> and that's why riot broke out in every city because, I'll quote the scripture, he proclaimed a new king. That's the gospel, is that Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, has been raised again, and he is this earth's true Lord. And he summons your believing obedience. He is Lord. He is King. He is Savior. And that was an in-your-face to Caesar. That's why Paul's head was cut off eventually. Do you understand? He was upstaging Caesar by saying, there's a new Lord of the earth. Here's the good news, brothers and sisters. The good news is that Jesus Christ not is going to be. He is this world's true Lord. He is Lord now. And that will be manifest one day when every knee shall bow. For He is this earth's true Lord. That is the Gospel. And the beauty of the Gospel is this. Once you have received this Lord as Lord, He is not only your King, He is not only your Savior, but He is your Lord. Now you become one with Him. And Paul's message was this. You have been freed from every kind of bondage. You have been freed from the law of Moses. 613 laws. Praise the Lord. You're free of them. And you're also free of the flesh. For He crucified it. You now have true liberty. You are free in Christ. You are totally and completely free. And He has made you one with Him inseparable from him so much so that when Paul got a glimpse of him on the road to Damascus Jesus said why are you persecuting me he wasn't persecuting Jesus Jesus was in heaven Jesus took it personal when his body on earth was being persecuted he did not see himself separate at all and he doesn't see himself separate from you brothers and sisters you're one with him and so when Paul wrote to the churches These are people who receive Him as Lord, who recognized His Lordship, and said, I bow the knee. You are Lord. I give You my life. I believe on You. I trust in You. He reminded them, always, whatever was going on in every church, He always started out by reminding them of who they were in Christ and who Jesus Christ was to them. That was the first thing He ever said. When he wrote to the Corinthians, his opening words, and that was a mess of a church and a mess of a problem. I mean, come on, think about it. They're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They're suing one another. The single brothers are sleeping with prostitutes. They got a man there who is committing incest, and incest is not best. Uh, they, are, they, they have false doctrine. People there are re- rejecting the resurrection. And he opens the letter up with the words, To the Holy Ones in Corinth and everyone who names the name of Jesus is Lord and then he reminds them of who they are when he talks about the divisions that they're having amongst themselves he says don't you realize that you are inseparable from Jesus Christ and that when you divide from one another 
It's like taking a butcher knife to Jesus Christ and cutting Him up into pieces. Don't you know who you are? And then when he was talking about the single brothers seeing the prostitutes, he said, don't you know that you're one spirit with Jesus Christ? And then when they were having internal conflicts and judging one another and taking one another to court, he said, don't you know that you are the holy temple of God and God lives in you? He reminded them of who they were and who their Lord was. And then he said, because this is all true, act that way. That's the Gospel of Paul. That is a liberating Gospel. It's not, do this, do that, God's angry with you. And it's not, it, God doesn't care, do whatever you want. It's, open your eyes and see who you are. Remember who you are. You're one with Christ. You're in Him and He's in you. And remember who He is because you've forgotten. And now, act that way. To Paul... The Christian life was becoming what you already are. It was becoming what you already are. In Ephesians, he tells the believers, you are light in the Lord. And then he says, walk as children of light. Notice the order. You are light. That's what you are. That's real. That's not positional truth. I could care less about positional truth. It means nothing to me. It doesn't do anything for me. I want to know what's real. And brothers and sisters, the fact that you are one with Christ, the fact that you are in Christ is real. It's not positional. It's not abstract. It's real. When He sees you, He sees His own literal body. That's real. And now, because this is true, act that way. Walk in it. You have Him in you. Let Him live His life. That's a liberating gospel. That's not follow the rules and that's not it doesn't matter. That's what a Lord. <laughs> what, a, what a God. Now, I'm going to attempt to bring the force of this on you by doing something I have not done ever. Which means this is risky. <laughs> and I have no idea how it's going to go. But this is how we're going to end this message. You have been reading Romans 8, 28-32, correct? There are several ways I can tackle this. I can read it to you, verse by verse, and stop there. Or I could read it verse by verse and expound it and give an exegetical, hermeneutical, unfolding and interpreting Whatever else word you want to throw in there. Okay, so I can read it to you or I can interpret it, but you know what? I thought to myself, I'm going to try something totally and completely different. Now those of you who are really strongly left brain, you're left brain, you're real analytical people, you might have a little trouble with this because I'm going to add a little bit of imagination. But I'm admitting that I'm adding imagination. I'm admitting, I'm confessing my trespasses right now. It's imagination mixed with the scripture. I'm telling a story, okay? Uh, I'm being like Max Licato, alright? Well, although not as eloquent, but you know, he kind of paints all these beautiful pictures, tells these stories. It's awesome. I am going to turn Romans 8, 28 to 32 into a story. It didn't really happen this way, folks. But I'm going to tell you something. What I'm going to share with you, I am convinced. The heart of it 
is true. And all you have to do is read the chapter yourself and I think you'll agree with me. Now, why am I doing this? Because I want to give you a glimpse of the greatness and the glory and the beauty and the astounding grandeur of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. Because that's the only way that we will ever be able to bow our knee to Him is if we really see who He is. And Paul did this when he wrote to the churches. And I'm convinced when he planted a church, he drowned them in a revelation of Christ that blew their mind and caused them to give their life to Him. And even then they had problems because we forget. And we need to be reminded. And that's why conferences like this and visitations from people who will just remind us about Jesus Christ is really, really helpful. Okay, so... Can we experiment a little bit? Do we have a dimmer? Is that a dimmer over there? Or no, that black? I don't think it is. Let's experiment with lights. Let's see if we can shut some of the lights out. That, okay. Oh, no, that's not going to work. Okay, well, let's, let's keep these on. Let's shut those out. All right, that's better than nothing. We're going to... What's going to happen is you people are really going to get into this, and you guys are going to just be totally bored. Um... I want to ask you all to close your eyes through this. It's not going to be very long, but I want your mind to paint pictures. I promise I will not be coming by and picking any pockets. Uh, I, I want your mind to paint some pictures, okay? Look, we're not doing anything weird or spooky. I just want to tell you a story, and I want you to focus on it, okay, instead of like being distracted by somebody who's you know, falling asleep or something. So... Um, I'm going to attempt to present Romans 8.28 in story form. I wrote this out before I came here, and I'm going to read it to you. I want you to close your eyes and concentrate. Let your mind paint pictures. And then we're going to close with one scripture, and then our meeting will be over. Romans 8.28-32. This passage is the climax. And an encapsulated summary of the entire letter of Romans. Here we go. It is the year 57 AD. Paul is in the city of Corinth. It's the middle of the night, and God appears to him in a dream. Paul does not see Jesus. He only hears his voice. The voice of the Lord tells him to write a letter to the Christians in Rome. The Lord then says, Paul... I'm going to show you what my body in Rome looks like in the eyes of my father. Suddenly, Paul sees the brothers and sisters in Rome standing in a meadow. They're all clothed in white. There's about 30 of them. They're standing in a circle with their arms around one another, and they're singing with their heads tilted toward the heavens. Paul can hear their voices only faintly, he can see the joy on their faces as their mouths move in praises to God. Paul says, I know who these are, Lord. I know these people. They're your people in Rome. The Lord responds, Yes, this is my body, my holy bride who lives in the imperial city. She shall suffer much, Paul. She does not have much time left on this earth. Soon she will be with me.
Paul has no idea that the Christians in Rome are marked for death. Many of them will not see their 45th birthday. Seven years from now, virtually every person in the church in Rome will be dead. Some of them will be dipped in oil, tied by their feet, and hung in Emperor Nero's new palace gardens. Nero will come by in a chariot with a torch, and he will light a fire in his garden with the bodies of God's people in Rome. The saints in Rome are less than a decade away from being decimated. For Nero will blame the Christians for a fire that will burn a portion of the city. And that is a fact, by the way. Paul continues to watch the Christians standing and singing when suddenly a dark figure emerges out of the ground in their midst. The figure rises above the group and points his finger at them saying, These people are unworthy of life. They are hypocrites. They share my nature. The voice of the Lord Jesus Christ responds from the heavens. Accuser, this is my very body on earth. They have been called according to my Father's eternal purpose. My Father and I love them and they love us in return. My Father's purpose reaches back before creation and it moves forward until everything will be dissolved and all those whom I've redeemed with my blood will return back into my Father and they will be one with us. They are my bride and one day they will be my wife and we will be one. There's a pregnant pause of silence. The dark figure responds saying, They do not love you nor your father. They are selfish and pathetic. If you stopped blessing them, they would curse you. The Lord responds, Satan, they are my people. My father knew them and chose them even before they were born. And he destined them to be my very brethren, bone of my bone and spirit of my spirit. You have nothing in me and you have nothing in them, for they are in me. I have called them. I have justified them. I have made them righteous. And they have received my glory, which one day will be manifested on this earth. And they shall crush your head and put you under their feet, for they are part of me and I am part of them. The Christians in Rome continue to sing louder as Paul watches on. Satan raises his voice in hostility and says, I hate them. My entire kingdom is set against them. Your father is holy and righteous. How can he accept them when they are so unlike him? They don't love him. They are imposters, evil mortals. I shall now list each of their sins against them, and I shall accuse them in their conscience. And before your father, I shall cease, Satan. A thunderous voice comes bellowing out of the heavens. This is not the voice of Jesus. It is the voice of God the Father, the Holy One, the Creator of all things, the Almighty who stands in unapproachable light, the one who was, is, and shall be. Paul falls on his face. He lifts his eyes to look, 
and the saints in Rome are now glowing in radiant light. They are still singing and holding on to one another. The dark figure has fallen to the ground. God the Father speaks, I am the Almighty, and these are my people. They are my children, and I am for them. Who then shall be against them? I gave my only begotten Son for them. Therefore, all that is mine is now theirs. Who can bring a charge against them? Who can utter an accusation? I have justified them. I have made them righteous. They are as righteous and as holy as I am. Who can level any condemnation against them? No one. For condemnation has died. I destroyed it in my son's death. These precious ones that you hear singing are my elect. I have chosen them, and they cannot be condemned. For they are in my son, safe and secure, fully accepted by me. And I am in love with them. The only way they can be condemned is if my son can be condemned, and that is impossible. My son is alive, and he is interceding for them constantly, and I always answer his prayers. Who then can separate them from me and my love? Nothing. Satan, you may bring trouble and hardship into their life. You may oppress them. You may depress them. You may persecute them. You may slander them. You may malign them. You may accuse them. You may strip them of their clothes. You may bring famine into their lives. You may put them in danger. And you may even take their life from this earth if I permit you to. But none of these things will separate me from them. Nothing can stop my love for them. Nothing in heaven nor in earth. Nothing above them nor beneath them. No angel, no demon, no man, no power that exists. Nothing in this universe can stop me from loving them. Nothing past, nothing present, nothing future. Therefore, they have nothing to fear. My wrath has been resolved in my son's death. They do not need to fear me, for I love them, and I am for them. They do not need to fear you, for you can do nothing to them to separate them from me. In fact, I am working everything that you may try to bring into their lives for their good and for the fulfillment of my ultimate purpose. Because I am for them. I shall destroy everything that is poised against them. They used to be my enemies, helpless and hopeless. But I was for them. And I reconciled them to myself. And they now have my favor. What they could not do for themselves, I did for them. Because I'm on their side. I have taken adoption papers out on them. I have gone to the other limits to save and redeem them. But I did more than that. I have made them my own kin by birth. They are now part of me. They share my life and my nature. They are my children, my sons and my daughters. No less than my only begotten, who is now 
my firstborn. And I am for them. And whatever it is you seek to do to them, they shall rise. They shall triumph. They shall overcome. For in all things they are more than conquerors through me, the Almighty, who has loved them, who is loving them, and who will ever love them. I am for them. Therefore, no one of any significance can be against them. The Father stops speaking and there is silence. The entire scene disappears and Paul wakes up. Immediately he grabs a piece of parchment and he begins writing out the vision. He tortures the paper with his pen and he presses the limits of human language to demonstrate what God in Jesus Christ has done for His people. These are the riches of the Lord's grace. These are the mercies of God. The next morning he will take out his notes and he will dictate the entire vision and much more to Tertius who will draft it into a lengthy epistle. We know that epistle by this name, the book of Romans. Amen and amen. All right, we can have these lights on now. Well, brothers and sisters, I want you all to turn to Romans chapter 8. And I just have one thing to say in response to this chapter. (laughs) How can you not love a Lord like that? How can you not bow your knee to a God like that? Romans 8 verse 28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His eternal purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those He also justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation? No. Or distress? No. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? No. Peril? No. Sword? No. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were all considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And this will happen to these saints in Romans seven years. They all, virtually all of them, will meet their Lord because Nero will put them to death. Verse 37, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us.
For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. And listen now, folks. Remember what I said. Paul presents this incredible Christ. And if you look at Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, he builds and builds and builds on the incredible work of Jesus Christ. The limits that God the Father went to to give Himself in every way to have you and me. These are the mercies of God. These are the riches of Christ. And then... He launches into a parenthesis. And chapters 9, 10, and 11 are a parenthesis. He switches subjects. And he picks up where he left off in Romans 8.32 and Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, what therefore? Therefore, in light of Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and that high crescendo, chapter 8 that we just read. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, which I have just unveiled to you, to present your bodies. A, A, 1 living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not go back to Egypt. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may do the will of God. Now, brothers and sisters, it's very simple. In light of this incredible Christ and what He has done for you and how He loves you and how you're one with Him and how you're in Him and how He's in you and you're inseparable from Him. In light of all that, Paul says to the Christians in Rome, present your bodies, plural, as one living sacrifice. Put yourself as a church on the altar. For this is the reasonable thing to do. Because God has a need. And the Lord is looking for a place to lay His head. And He wants a body by which to express Himself in the earth. He wants a body by which to express Himself in the earth. I'm going to say that one more time. He wants a body by which to express Himself in the earth. What is the purpose of your body? It's to express the life that's in it. The purpose of your body, brother, is to express who you are. If we took this body away from you, you would have no expression in this earth. Jesus Christ is in the Spirit now. His physical body is in heaven. But He has a body on earth. In every city, He wants to be expressed. He wants to continue His ministry that He started when He was in Nazareth, in Galilee, in Capernaum, and Judea. What does it mean to present your bodies as a living sacrifice? It means that you as a church, as a group of people who belong to the Lord, put yourself on the altar and you say, Lord, we are your body here in this town. We give ourselves for your need 
so that you can express yourself through us. You are the head. We take orders from you. And we have one pursuit. That's to know you, to love you, and to follow you. We give ourselves to you. Now I'm speaking to the brothers and sisters who meet together, who are represented in this room. Brothers and sisters who meet in Springfield, the people who put this conference on, this is the word for you. This is the word for any of you who represent a church, a house church, here in this room. And some of you may not right now, but you will one day. Maybe sooner than you think. A community of believers that come together for Jesus Christ alone. I want to take my cue from Paul and I want to exhort you in light of what you heard last night that God wants a Bethany in your town. In light of what you heard today that He wants you to return to your natural habitat, Jerusalem, for the building of His house, for His desire and His purpose. In light of all that the Lord has done for you and who He is, I wish to exhort you as a church to present your bodies as one living sacrifice. Now, I have only seen this done two ways by two different churches. And maybe there's a third and a fourth and a fifth way. And if you come up with another way to do this visibly and practically, then you write me an email. Tell me. I want to know. And I said, Lord, we're here for you. We're not meeting for our needs. We're meeting for your needs. And perhaps there's a third way and a fourth way and a fifth way. But I want to challenge you to do this. And this is going to require that you all put your cards on the table and say, I'm ready. I'm ready to be a Bethany. I'm ready to go to Jerusalem and live there. And I would just say, if you're not ready to build for Him and give it to Him and meet for Him and by Him and through Him, and maybe you're burned in Babylon or you're, you're living in Egypt and you know it and for whatever reason this hasn't broken anything in your heart then please don't pull those other brothers and sisters down be noble enough to say you know what I'm not ready for this rather than to pull that group of believers down I wish you all would say yes to Jesus Christ because he said yes to you <laughs> a long time ago and he's still saying yes this doesn't change the way the Lord looks at you it doesn't change the way he loves you if you do this or you don't do it he's not going to love you any more or less but he has a need and my heart is to see Bethany's all over this earth raised up for his expression that's what he's longing for the son of man has no place to lay his head make him a place so that the kingdom of God can increase and advance on this earth for His glory. Now that, my dear brothers and sisters, is my final message. Take it to the Lord. Tomorrow morning I'm going to get real practical on what you can do as a church, wherever you are, to center your life around Jesus Christ. And even if you're not part of a church, this will help you as an individual Christian. And hopefully... The day will come when you'll find other believers. Having said that, let's stand up. We're going to sing number 11.